Don't you love when the Seattle weather plays fair on Easter? It's a, it's a rarity. Um, if you didn't bring a Bible this morning, you'll find one right in the back of the pew. And if you use the index right at the front, you can find the New Testament Gospel of Luke. We're going to be in its last chapter, chapter 24 this morning. All right, Luke, the author of this gospel, never met Jesus face to face. He was not in Jerusalem, was not in Galilee, was not in Israel in the days of Jesus's ministry, and he wasn't a Christian himself until uh, a few decades after uh, Jesus had died, been buried, resurrected, ascended. But he became a Christian, and then as he went on in his life and as he got to know the Apostle Paul, he realized that he had a skill set that would be valuable. And that skill set was basically like an investigative reporter. And so he opens this gospel saying that he was writing for a man named Theophilus and that he wanted to provide an orderly account of the things that had happened in Jesus' ministry via eyewitness testimony. And it's really interesting as you read the Gospel of Luke how you can pick up on the pieces of particular personal testimony of people's encounters with Jesus, with the stories of Jesus' mother, Mary herself. And so Luke will say things like, and Mary hid these things in her heart. How does he know that? Because Mary was talking to Luke and said, and I hid these things in my heart, right? It's a very private and personal remark. But another thing that makes him especially skilled is that he was a doctor by trade. And so he has kind of an observational, detail-oriented bent. And it shows up throughout his gospel. And so this morning, I want to kind of come and look at one of the stories of the first Easter Sunday, on the day that Jesus rose from the grave. And I want to examine the resurrection. I want to I lean into Luke's approach and, and take a closer maybe a medical or even a scientific look at the resurrection. And so to do so, um, we're going to pick up here in chapter 24 in verse 36, and I'd like to read the passage through, and then I'm going to pray, and then we'll look at it at some length. And so here in verse 36 of Luke 24, as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why did doubts arise in your heart? See my hands, my feet? See that it's I myself? Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything to eat here? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and he ate it before them. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scripture. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. 
You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Let's pray. Father, as we open your word this morning, would you send that same spirit Jesus promised to his apostles? Would you send it as our teacher and as our instructor, as the spirit who knows the very depths of our heart and connects the dots for us with the very mind of God himself? Would you open our eyes to see the risen Lord Jesus and the glorious reality related to the fact that Jesus is alive? Would you help us with this in his very name, in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. To begin with, I think it would be helpful to wind backwards, to to take a running start into this passage. I've just kind of cold dropped you into the end of a book, chapter 24. And not only that, but I've dropped you into the middle of a story that goes back deep into the Old Testament. And I think it's easy for us to miss the impact of this moment in this very room that's recorded here where these disciples are together. And so I want you to realize that the men and the women in this room are Jews. They're people who have grown up in the land of Israel, studying, praying, uh, uh, reciting the Old Testament. They know the story it contains. They know that, uh, that what is wrong with our world is that Adam and Eve, our first parents, set a pattern and a paradigm of choosing our own way instead of the ways of God. And they've seen and observed, as we all have, that the world we live in is not as it should be. And they are the descendants of the promises made to Abraham that God was going to set things right and he was going to do it through this very people. And he'd given them a law and a priesthood and a tabernacle and sacrifices and ways and means of understanding who God was. But more importantly, they had promises. Promises that one day God was going to send a man to set things right. The word in the Old Testament is Messiah. It's synonymous with the New Testament word Christ, which is not Jesus' last name. It's a title, Messiah. Okay? They were waiting as a people. They were expecting as a people. They were longing as a people. And if you read the Gospels, you'll see this on every page. Everybody's asking the same question. Is Jesus him? Is John the Baptist him? Could this be the one that we're waiting for? And so they've been waiting for the one who will set things right, God's appointed king, and then they meet Jesus. And Jesus is unlike any person they've ever met. He seems to know their deepest and most secret thoughts. He calls them directly out of their plain and mundane lives as fishermen and tax collectors and says, come and follow me. And as they do follow him, they see him do miraculous things. And they hear him preach with an authority and a clarity that they've never heard before. Imagine what it'd be like to be sitting in a field and hear the Sermon on the Mount live. And they're watching this play out in real time. And after they travel with Jesus and see all of the power that he has and the marvel that he is, he sends them out and he says, you guys are going to do these same things in my name. And so here's a fisherman praying over a demonically possessed child and the demon comes out of him in Jesus' name. And they pray for a sick woman and she's healed. And they're seeing these things happening and they're marveling and they're amazing. And then Jesus very clearly and intentionally says, we need to go to Jerusalem. 
And for them, they know exactly what that means because Jerusalem is where the throne of Israel is. It's the place where they're expecting the Messiah to enter into. And it culminates in a day where Jesus, again, very intentionally and purposely rides into Jerusalem on a donkey, fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah. Not in some magical, mystical way. He does it on purpose. He says, I want to make a point here. Get me a donkey. And he does, just as Zechariah said. What is he saying? He's saying, I'm here. I am the one you were expecting. I am the Messiah. And so he shows up in Jerusalem, and they're there to celebrate the Passover. But suddenly, the disciples are overwhelmed by the talking of Jesus, which is as if he's just about to leave. And they're thinking, wait, we just got here. And he's talking about danger and darkness and death and betrayal. And they're thinking about exaltation and thrones and conquering and victory. And then in the middle of the night, on a Thursday night, they're praying in the garden. And Jesus is so overwhelmed with sorrow, and the disciples can barely keep their eyes open. And one of his own, Judas, shows up with a bunch of soldiers And they arrest Jesus, and they carry him off to a mock trial. And then they carry him to the Roman governor, Pilate. And they demand his death, because the Jews don't have capital punishment. They're an occupied people, so they need Rome's help to kill this heretic, Jesus. And the disciples watch as he's carried off to a hill outside of Jerusalem, and crucified between two criminals. And they watch as all of their expectations, their hopes, their dreams are just shattered. Can you imagine that they're a broken people, that they're confused, that they're mystified? The next day is the Sabbath, which is like a giant pause every week in their schedule. Nothing can be done. The markets aren't open. They're just going about their quiet Sabbath business. And then finally, Sunday morning comes, and some of the women who are in this room here go very early to the grave to finish what had been started, to prepare Jesus' body for burial. But he's gone. And they come back and they tell the disciples and they're like, Jesus' body is missing, it's gone. And then right before this, Luke records two disciples who hear about this from the women and are walking on a road on the way to Emmaus. And as they're walking, a stranger comes up and he says, why are you guys talking in such hushed tones? And they say, don't you know what's happened? And they tell him the whole story of Jesus all the way up to the women who say that he's missing. And then suddenly Jesus says, that's me. And so these disciples encounter Jesus and come into the room and they tell a room full of people, no, no, Jesus is alive. It's at that moment that our passage picks up, where they are caught in the bewilderment and the befuddlement of everything crumbling down, a mysterious missing body, a, 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 you know, an articulation that Jesus is actually alive. And by the way, John tells us that the door is locked. And so when it says here, as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them. Don't think that he climbed through a window. He just appears. Okay, That's where this passage picks up. That's why they're disturbed, shocked, why they think, is this a ghost? What is going on here? Right? They're way beyond the normal parameters of life and deep within the twilight zone. Okay, That's where we are when we pick up this passage this morning. There's a lot of expectations and confusion there's a lot of uh, heart pain and and I love how uh, Luke tells us in um, verse 41 and they still disbelieved for joy isn't that a weird phrase can you imagine being so happy you're not sure this is real of course you do 
Of course you understand that, because we have a saying, right? Too good to be true. That's what they're experiencing right now. Now, it's not just too good to be true. I think we would all recognize in this room, it's too weird to be true. We're talking about someone who we saw die crucified by experts in crucifixion. And three days later is alive. It, it is surprising. Okay. But it's also a lot more than surprising. We can talk after. It's also a lot more than surprising. I, again, I want to examine this passage, and I almost want to do it as a scientist this morning. And, and not in the sense where I want to draw out, uh, you know, the, the factual reality of this resurrection. But let me just put it frankly. Paul says, if Christ is not risen then we as Christians are of all people to be most pitied because we're dead in our sins and we're wasting our life on a lie, okay? Nick said high stakes earlier, and I agree with that sentiment. But I don't want to just look at the factuality here. I, I want to look at it from the angles, okay? And so I'll show you what I mean. The first thing I want you to notice here is that Jesus' resurrection was visible, Okay, again, look at verse 36. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace to you. Remember the transition I mentioned? Jesus was alive in theory at this point. Whether they accepted that theory or not, people were reporting that he was alive and suddenly he's standing in their midst. Verse 37, but they were startled and frightened and thought he was a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your heart? Uh, notice what he says in verse 39. See my hands and my feet that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as, bones as you see that I have. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. Do you hear it in the language? I, I know I'm pointing out the obvious, but this is, this is the best science. The best science is when you point out the obvious because we take it for granted. Jesus' resurrection here is visible, not invisible. Okay. Why does that matter? It matters significantly for us this morning because the foundation of our belief, who have not seen Jesus the way that these men and women saw Jesus, is based upon eyewitness testimony. Okay. Walter Martin was an apologist. He was a Christian defender of Christianity who tried to explain and articulate the reasonableness of our belief. And one of the things that I loved about Walter Martin is he was very quick to throw out bad arguments. He didn't believe that the ends justified the means, and so even a bad argument will do as long as it convinces somebody. And one time I heard him very shockingly say, our faith doesn't rest on an empty tomb. And I remember tuning in to pay attention to what he could mean. Because if you were paying attention this morning, we've made mention to the empty tomb multiple times this morning. And he says, our faith doesn't rest on an empty tomb. It rests on a risen Lord who was seen alive. Okay. And again, it's, it's a little bit detail cleaning up. But when it says here that he showed them his hands and his feet, why is that significant? Because Jesus was crucified. And so his hands and his feet are marked with scars where the nails were driven through. This is not some uh, opportunistic imposter. Okay. It's Jesus. They recognize him. They see that it's Jesus, post-crucifixion Jesus, 
risen from the grave, Jesus. They recognize that this is Jesus. And if you read the New Testament, you will discover a almost overwhelming emphasis on eyewitness testimony. I already told you that's how Luke opens in chapter 1, an orderly account of eyewitness testimony. John tells us in 1 John, the things that we have seen, the things that we have heard, the things that we have handled with our own hands, it is these things that we proclaim to you. Paul speaks of the risen Jesus in 1 Corinthians 15, the same place where he says, if Christ is not risen, then your faith is futile. And he says that Jesus was seen by Peter and John and at one time by 500 people. And then he adds this zinger, many of whom are still alive today. Paul writes a letter to a church in Corinth and says, if you want to meet people who have seen the risen Jesus, just go to Jerusalem. They're still there. Okay. Eyewitness testimony is the foundation of our belief. And so we have to watch out for this language that says Christ is merely risen in our hearts as if there's some sort of ideology or some sort of mythology or some sort of great human ideal that we can just embrace that's underneath the deception and the lies or the over-articulation, that there's some kernel, even if the husk is untrue. No, Christ is alive. But more than that, not only was it visible, it was also bodily. And I want you to see again that Luke emphasizes that. What we have here is not the appearance of, uh, you know, like a touched by an angel, Jesus. An ethereal, glowing, now granted, weird, right? Appears in locked rooms, but flesh and blood. In fact, Jesus wants to make this point so significantly. Look at verse 40. It says, and when he had said this, he showed them their hands, his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and he ate before them. It'd be really easy to just scrub over that as if Jesus was hungry. Like, boy, crucifixion's a lot of work, right? <laughs> this is clearly not for Jesus. Jesus is not asking for something to eat because he's hungry. He's asking for something to eat because he still can eat. Right? He wants to demonstrate his humanity. And so he asks for some food and he eats. Okay. Now again, this has significance for us today. Because the good news, the gospel that Christianity proclaims is a gospel that impacts the physical realm. It's not a gospel of evacuation, that here you are trapped in your bodies, but one day God will free you from these earthen cages and your souls can float around heaven. No, what the Bible talks about is that what happened to Jesus here will happen to us. Flesh and bones, granted, weird flesh and bones, granted, new, fully functioning, as God had intended, eternal bodies, but bodies, and again, I would suggest to you that that is greatly significant, and Luke is trying to draw attention to it here, that what happened to Jesus is not just life after death paranormal reality, it is resurrected life. It is physical and embodied and back from the dead. Okay. So it's visible, and it's physical. But notice what he says in verse 44. 
These, then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. This next thing we see is that it's predictable. Okay? Again, if we're going to talk about the scientific method, this is the essence of the scientific method. We create a hypothesis and we test it. And if you can't prove the hypothesis, it's not fact. It's not science. Okay? It was just a guess. But a valid hypothesis is one that you can test and it is proven. And this is striking, isn't it? Because again, I know that we're talking about someone coming back from the dead, which even the Bible would say in the way that it means it for Jesus has never happened in the history of the world. Resuscitation, revivification, old Victorian term, doesn't roll off the tongue very easily. Yes, even in Jesus' ministry, just a few weeks before this, he shows up at the tomb of Lazarus, and Lazarus is alive, even though he's laid in a tomb for three days. But Lazarus will die again. What happens to Jesus is brand new. Okay? But that doesn't mean that it's not to be expected. Isn't that striking? Jesus kind of chides him here, and he says, why are you guys even surprised? This was the plan. This is exactly what was supposed to happen. In fact, notice what he says to those disciples on the road just earlier in the day. Look at what he says here. So they tell him the whole story, and they finish by saying, and now some women from our group showed up at the tomb, and they're saying that he's alive. And look at how he responds to these disciples, verse 25. He said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. He says, you silly guys. Are you so foolish that you're surprised by what you should have expected? Why is that the case? Well, Jesus gives us a couple of reasons back in the end of Luke. Notice the first one he says is, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. Jesus says, guys, I told you this would happen. And if you read the Gospels in Matthew, in Mark, in Luke, even in John, in all of them you will find repeated accounts where Jesus said, we're headed to Jerusalem. And when we get there, I'm going to be handed over to the Gentiles, and I'm going to be crucified, and I'm going to be buried, and three days later, I will rise from the dead. But the disciples can't wrap their head around that. And so every time they hear it, they try and metaphorically understand it. And they're like, okay, so he's going to have a bad Thursday, and then he'll be enthroned on Friday. It's something like that, guys, right? They just can't wrap their head around this, and so they stop hearing it. But Jesus has told them over and over again, but not only that, Jesus has told them that because their own scriptures, the Old Testament, have proclaimed this path since, you know, they're, again, well-versed, grown up in these scriptures. And so he says, these are what I told you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Notice two things. First, that list, law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Paul is, or Jesus here is speaking as a Jew unto Jews. And so what he's doing there is referring to the entirety of the Old Testament. There's the Pentateuch, the first five books, the Law of Moses, the Prophets, which includes the former prophets who wrote First, uh, Second Samuel, First, Second Kings, First, Second Chronicles, the latter prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and then the Psalms, which is kind of a category catch-all for all of the wisdom literature and the writings. This is a known triple reference to the Old Testament. It's how the Jews identified the whole of scriptures. And so basically what Jesus says is, don't you know that all of the scriptures were leading to this point? Don't you know that the entire story of the Old Testament was pointing towards this event? 
And he says something even more profound in the Gospel of John, speaking with religious scholars who by this time had memorized the entire Old Testament, which is a significant feat, is it not? I mean, just, just take two-thirds of, of your Bible right now and imagine memorizing that. Standard fare for the Pharisees that Jesus is talking to. And he says, you search them. You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have life, but it is they that testify of me. Now, sometimes we take Jesus for granted. We don't think about how awkwardly profound a statement like that is. Here's a man who happens to be an itinerant preacher, currently homeless, totally unknown, untrained, unrespected, and he says, yeah, that book that was written over 1,400 years, the last volume of which was written 400 years before my birth, I'm the main character. Okay, we have a response to that. We use it all the time. We call it institutionalizing. Jesus makes a profound claim, and he says here, the scriptures declared these things, and then the second thing I want you to notice here, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. These were not optional, they were inevitable. The death and resurrection of the Messiah was inevitable. It was intended. Just a few months after this, Peter, one of the men standing in this room who had betrayed Jesus and denied him, and, uh, and yet in a few months he's going to stand before a crowd, he's going to tell him the same story in basically the same way, and he's going to say, this Jesus who was confirmed to you by miracles and all of his healings and doings, you crucified by lawless hands according to the foreordained plan of God. Talk about a mind-warping sentence. You were guilty of his death as God intended, is what Peter says. According to the plan. John, again, who we mentioned earlier, one of Jesus' closest disciples. In the book of Revelation, he tells us that the lamb was slain before the foundations of the world. In other words, before there was a world to save, God had a plan to save it. And it involved this path, death, burial, and resurrection. And if you read the Old Testament, you will discover allusions, prophecies, metaphors, picture language, typology, all that's pointing this way. You will read about Abraham, who's given miraculously a son in his old age after his wife has gone through menopause. And then when he gets to be about 17 years old, God says, all right, now I want you to take him over to this hill and sacrifice him, bodily human sacrifice him to me. And Abraham's walked with God enough to know that even when he doesn't understand, obedience is the best route, so he does it. He carries him to the mountain, and as you would, as a 17-year-old whose father is traveling along morosely pondering your death, he has questions. Dad, we're going to make a sacrifice, but where's the lamb? And Abraham says, God will provide the lamb, which I don't actually think is Abraham knowing what's going to happen. I think that is him avoiding the question. But he gets up to the mountain, he raises the knife, and God speaks from heaven and says, Abraham, enough! provided a sacrifice, a ram caught in the thicket, sacrifice it instead. And then the passage says one of the weirdest things in all of the book of Genesis. It says, and to this day, everybody calls that mountain the mountain where God will provide. Future tense. Somehow, Abraham, 
The people who Abraham shared the story with, Moses, as he wrote the book of Genesis, knew that that was a past picture of a future reality, but this time it wasn't going to be Abraham's only son on the chopping block, but God's only son. Peter tells us that the Psalms, when David recognizes that one of his descendants will live and reign forever, and so he writes a poem and he says, my soul, you will not leave to corruption, my body, you will not leave to decay, And Peter goes to his audience, remember, David's tomb's right over there. He's gone. He's dead. And he says, but he prophetically proclaimed that this would happen to one of his descendants, and it has happened in Jesus Christ. If you read the Old Testament, and you stop there, remove the New Testament, forget about it, just stop there, what you have is a question without an answer. What you have is a problem without a solution. What you have is a curse without a blessing disobedience without forgiveness. Go ahead, do it. Try it. Read the Old Testament through and you will notice that the story has a very clearly implied to be continued and it is a cliffhanger ending. Israel is in exile under the authority of Rome, no longer fulfilling the promises. How is God going to set this right? How possibly could one of descendants the descendants of David reign. All the questions are there, and Jesus shows up and he says, they're about me, but there's only one road that leads to that throne, and it's through the cross. Okay? But it is predictable. Let me hit this just one last time, especially if you're not a Christian this morning, if you're not familiar with the scriptures. In Isaiah, this is what God says about such predictions. He says, I am the only God who declares the end from the beginning, and you can know that I am God because I've done so. God has told us what he would do beforehand so that we would know that he is the living God and that his son is Jesus Christ. Okay, so it's visible, it's physical, it's predictable. Uh, sorry, it is predictable. <laughs> I was mixing my next, uh, next outline point here. Uh, notice... What it says in verse 46, he said to them, thus it is written that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. I want you to notice here it's practical. Okay. If this was scientific in the way that we're talking about, this is applied science, not theory. What he says here is that the resurrection matters that it's relevant for your life right here and now, that this is not just some sort of supernatural anomaly that happened one time that science still can't explain, even though they can't, but that it actually has implications and applications for your life. And specifically, he gives two. He says that uh, Christ should suffer on the third day, rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name. That's the application. That's the proclamation. That's the response to the good news. When we use the word gospel here, that basically just means good news. But sometimes we forget what makes good news good news. It's basically two things, okay? One is it has to be news. It has to be something that happened, okay? If I say good news, if you pay me $15, I will give you this service, that's got not good news. It's advice. It says, do this and this will happen. If I say good news, I can tell you how to live a life that is faithful and righteous and deserving of merit before God. That's not good news. That's good advice. The word is taken from the ancient 
Roman first century world where they said, good news, Caesar has conquered the barbarians and your town has been delivered. Okay? If it can't make the front page, it's not news. But it also has to be good news, which means not just that it's good for somebody, but it's good for you. Okay. N.T. Wright puts it this way. If I come to you and I say, Manchester United has won the World Cup, it's news. Might not be good news. Might not impact your life at all. Maybe you don't care. Maybe you don't even know who Manchester U is. Okay. But here... He proclaims that it is practical, that it is applicable, that it is good news for everybody and that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name. And then notice, we'll come back to this in a second, to all nations. Not just good news, good news for you. Right here, thousands of years later in Seattle, on the other side of the globe. Good news for you. Why? Because it is a call to repentance and an offer of forgiveness. Why repentance? What does the fact that Jesus died, was buried, and rose again have to do with repentance? This is how Paul explains it to a bunch of Greek philosophers. He says that God has appointed one man to judge the living and the dead and has proven his appointment by raising him from the dead. In other words, repentance is proclaimed because one day each and every one of you will stand before this same living Jesus Christ and give an account for your life. He is the judge. He is the one who determines right and wrong, good and bad, yes and no. And we can take that to the bank because he's also the one who lives. Okay. And so repentance is a recognition that the world has gone wrong, yes, but so have you. And so the primary proclamation of the New Testament is not Jesus is Savior, although he is, and although it says that. The one it says much more often is Jesus is Lord. Okay. The resurrection is the enthronement of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And so Paul says that, uh, in Philippians that because he has done this, that one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, I don't know where you're at this morning. And if you're not a believer, that's a heavy statement for me to make, a profound prediction. I could name the winner of seven Super Bowls, and it wouldn't compare to this, to saying that one day you're going to get on your knees and say, yes, Jesus, you are Lord. Okay. But I don't have to say that because Paul said that. Okay. And so the call here is to repent, but it's not just a command to set things right. It's also a fresh and new possibility because Jesus is alive. I love how C.S. Lewis puts this. He says, repentance is a conundrum. It, it, it doesn't really make any sense because repentance takes a good man to do, but a good man doesn't need to repent. And those who need to repent aren't good men, so they don't, okay? And maybe you've experienced this like I have, that there's a major difference between recognizing right and wrong and doing right and avoiding wrong. Maybe you've realized that repentance, which means to change and walk in the other direction, is not easy and feels often impossible. But if Jesus is alive, he promises to those who believe in him the possibility for newness of life. And C.S. Lewis carries it further. He says, what if you think of the crucifixion of Jesus as an act of repentance? 
One that Jesus didn't need to do because he did all the things that pleased the Father, but he surrendered and fully submitted to his will. Hebrews tells us that he learned obedience by the things he suffered, and he did so on your behalf. He did so in your place, and he did so that you could enter in and enter into that repentance and do what you could not do. And more than that, as we'll see in just a minute, because of the promise of the Holy Spirit, you could actually experience the empowerment of God for real change now. Augustine, an early church father in in about the fourth century, he said, God, command what you will as long as you enable what you command. And that's what this is. This call to repentance here is not just a command, it's a command that overlays a promise. That now repentance is actually possible because Jesus is alive. And then second, repentance proclaimed in his name and also forgiveness. Forgiveness. Why? Because Jesus' death wasn't accidental. We've already seen that. It was intended. And it was intended as a sacrifice, as a means to rectify our guilt before a holy God, as Uh, As it says in the New Testament so many times, Christ died for us. Jesus died in our place. It uses big words to say so. It says Christ is our propitiation, which is an old ancient sacrifice term, which means that it appeased the wrath of God. He is our expiation, which which is a janitorial term, which means it scrubbed away and cleansed our stains. Okay? He is our redeemer, His sacrifice was our redemption, which means just like Israel in slavery in Egypt, now we've been set free. It it uses so many words to convey this point, that you needed a Savior, and a Savior was provided in Jesus Christ. And so true, full forgiveness, and through that forgiveness, an entrance into a perfect union with Jesus and relationship with the God who made you and loves you is available to us. It's practical. It's also, as we saw, universal. God has appointed one man to judge the living and dead. God has brought about one mediator, our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to God except through me. Okay? And that can feel exclusive but it's actually tremendously inclusive because that means that that one Lord and that one Savior is available for you as your Lord and your Savior. And there are no prerequisites except that you need one, and I can tell you in advance you qualify. Universal. Churches all over the world gather today Across the different time zones to remember this. From every tribe, every tongue, every language. Some of them gather in buildings like we do. Some of them gather in the jungle around campfires. Some of them gather outdoors because it's hot. Indoors because it's cold. All celebrating the same fact. But the fact is greater and bigger than that. It concerns our neighbors who are asleep in the building next to us. It concerns the tribes that have never heard the name of Jesus. It is for everyone. It is universal, and again, that is science. What is true here is true there. What's true then is true now. And there are people sitting in this room with me this morning that can confirm that forgiveness 
and repentance have been made available in Jesus Christ, and we have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. Amen? But that's not all. And this is, I think, the most profound and exciting one on the whole list. Not only is it visible and physical and applicable and uh, predictable and universal, it is repeatable. And again, this is a requirement for science. We don't trust any science that rests on a single happening of a single experiment or a single survey of a single audience. We want to see consistent results that always affirm the same thing. And to say, again, that the resurrection is repeatable is profound. Remember again, what Luke records for us here has never happened in the history of the world. It is a brand new happening, but it is also a beginning. And so notice what it says in verse 48. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay into the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Now that is a theologically packed sentence that involves a lot of context. If I were to turn to the book of Acts chapter 1, or the end of John's gospel, or Matthew or Mark, we could unpack what Jesus is talking about, but I'll spare us the detour. He says, I want you to wait in Jerusalem because when I ascend, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to empower you as my witnesses. Okay? I'm actually going to impart to you the nature of God to give you the ability to overcome sin, to proclaim powerfully the gospel, to, uh, to live a different way, to represent and fulfill your purpose as witnesses. He says, that's what I'm going to do. But when the New Testament goes on to talk about the Holy Spirit, it says that this is only the beginning of what the Spirit will do. Paul in Ephesians says that the Spirit is the seal of our redemption, okay? It's as if we're an unclaimed package at the UPS in the back room, but there's a mark right there, and it's addressed to God, and he will come and he will claim it, okay? That's, that's the idea of a seal. It, it, in another place, he says that the Spirit is like the down payment of our inheritance. It's only the first installment of what God's going to do, okay? Or... To make it even clearer, listen to Paul's, here, uh, Paul's words here in Romans chapter 8. This is from verse 11 of Romans 8, and he says this, If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. What is Paul saying? Paul's saying that the presence of the Spirit is the evidence of your future resurrection just like Jesus's. Okay. That the Spirit is the evidence and the means for a future resurrection just like Jesus rose, which is why the New Testament refers to the resurrection of Jesus as the firstborn of the dead, just the beginning. Okay. And so it is repeatable here because, again, that's the problem. If you want to describe what the Bible says is wrong with the world, death will suffice. Death is the problem. In some ways, it's only a symptom. In some ways, you have to understand that metaphorically, but it's a good cover language term. And so it is good news that Jesus rose from the dead and that he brought the ability to raise from the dead because he's going to renew all things and set all things right. And I want to speak to you very simply, those of you who are already believers in Jesus this morning. One of the tensions of being a Christian 
is living in the now and anticipating what will be. One of the tensions is experiencing full frontal death on the daily and longing for life. And sometimes I think we feel like because life is hard, we're doing something wrong. Or because we feel like fighting with our sin is a struggle, we're doing something wrong. Or because we groan, which is not a celebratory term, is it? It's a term of mourning. Because we mourn, there must be something wrong. But Paul says that all creation is groaning. He says that the Spirit who God promised through Jesus Christ is in you joining in that universal groaning. And he says that we groan along with the Spirit for the redemption of our bodies and the resurrection of the children of God. The setting right of all that is wrong. Okay. And so it is mature and appropriate and an act of worship to mourn, to long, to say like the psalmist, how long, O Lord, to enter into even those dark psalms like we read this morning, all, you know, we are like sheep being slaughtered for you daily, but we do so, we mourn as those with hope, knowing that although death will come to all men, in Jesus Christ that is not the end, but only the beginning. Knowing that although death is currently around us, he has already lost and been defeated. And so, what I'm suggesting to you is that God promises us here a beginning of that resurrected life at the core of who you are. Resurrecting fingers is not difficult compared to resurrecting hearts. And so that's where God begins the work. He changes you from the inside. And that's available to you right now, right this morning. Whether you've been a Christian for 30 years or you're not yet a Christian, God is offering you in Jesus Christ a new beginning, not just a fresh start, not just be set at the beginning line again and start again, but a new in kind beginning, a life with Jesus, a communion with God, empowerment in the Holy Spirit, and the ability to experience life as it was intended as we await the world being as it was intended. Okay. And so when we put this all together and when we use Luke's kind of doctoral presentation, here's what I want to say about the resurrection. Two things. First, if Jesus is alive, everything you know is wrong. This is a Capernaum revolution. Do you know what I mean? It's a paradigm shift. It is something that breaks the scientific theory of your life so severely you throw it all out and you start over because if this is real everything else if the sun is actually at the center of the universe instead of the earth it changes everything if Jesus is Lord and living everything you know is wrong and that means that a life of following Jesus is a life of course correction of turning around, of repentance, of recognizing that you've embraced misunderstandings and lies, of giving up selfishness and experiencing shalom, this idea of human communal flourishing. Okay. But second, not only is if Jesus is alive, then everything you know is wrong. Second, if Jesus is alive, then today is a new day. Every day. 
a day of new possibilities and new potentialities. The psalmist says that the mercies of the Lord are new every morning. And that's always been true because God is merciful. But once Jesus came and set things right, it's truly true. It's permanently true. It's irrevocably true. Wherever you are this morning, today can be a new beginning. Because Jesus is alive and standing at the right hand of the Father and beckoning you back. A new day because no matter how you behaved yesterday or what you thought yesterday or how life ate you for breakfast, today is a day that you can start fresh in the power of Christ. Jesus is not just a past tense Savior, but a present tense Lord. Ready and available to us this morning. That's why the church has famously proclaimed in awkward glamour, grammar, he is risen not he has. What we read this morning is not just something that happened one time. It's something that's happening right now. Let's pray.